Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you are having fantastic Tuesdays, wherever you may be. Tomorrow, if you're in the Nashville area at 6th and Peabody, uh, the SEC Media Days are going on as we speak. That is the Southeastern Conference Media Days. Everybody's getting ready for the college football season. Uh, I'm throwing a party tomorrow. Uh, starts at 6, will go to 10.30 or 11. There are a lot of... I, look, I, I'm not a huge music guy, right? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know uh, a ton about music in general. Um, but... We are going to have a fabulous gathering of music. It is free, uh, and let me make sure that I get all these bands correct that are going to be in attendance uh, at our event. Tailgate Throwdown tomorrow, Old Smokey, which is right downtown in Nashville, uh, Parmalee, Cisco, Megan Patrick, and Drew Parker are all going to play uh, starting at 6 o'clock. There will be cool drink specials. Basically, think of it as like a college football kickoff party. Uh, I will be there. I think they have room uh, for a decent crowd. But again, live concert. Again, Parmalee, Cisco, Megan Patrick, Drew Parker. Going to be really fun starting at 6 o'clock Central tomorrow. Uh, If you are in the Nashville area uh, or you want to drive in for it, it'll be fun. Uh, Also, three weeks from today, three weeks from today, My book will be out August the 8th. The book, American Playbook, it's going to be in stores everywhere. I want to open it, number one overall, the New York Times. Uh, I will be promoting this thing. First week, I will be in New York City, Cleveland, Atlanta, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I'm going to be going all over the country uh, for this book. First week, New York City, Raleigh, uh, Cleveland, and Atlanta. So, uh, again, three weeks from today, this bad boy will be out. You can go order it, get it shipped to you. You can get autographed copies as well. Uh, I'll be sharing those links. You can go find it. You'll be glad when you do. All right, uh, several other different things out there that we need to talk about, uh, but we got to start with the looming January 6th indictment. Uh, Donald Trump uh, let news be known that he had been invited to come testify in front of the grand jury. General rule, you never have a potential criminal defendant testify in front of a grand jury. So this is mostly a procedural invite. Potential defendants never take it up, uh, by and large. And so we're going to get federal criminal charges brought against Donald Trump in the Washington, D.C. courts for January 6th, the related Uh, endeavors. This will build on the bookkeeping uh, felony in New York City, the what I believe will be charges brought in Atlanta, uh, Georgia, by a left-wing prosecutor, and the charges that have already been brought in South Florida. Uh, Now, why is this happening? Why are charges being brought in this case and in all these cases? I think you have to get Before I analyze the legality here, I think you have to get inside the mind of Democrats. This is one of the advantages of being a lawyer, right? Lawyers are trained to look at all the facts and to think about the facts from the perspective of multiple sides. And so I'm always in my head when I make an argument. I'm always thinking through the best case scenario with the other side. 
And I said, I think I have the best job in America. People say, what do you mean by that? So when I was an attorney, and there are probably a lot of attorneys watching or listening to this right now who know exactly what I'm talking about, you don't get to choose the side of the case that you take on. So when I was a young attorney, I represented all different sorts of, uh, of cases. And I never got to say, oh, I'd like to be on this side of the equation. I'd like to be on that side of the equation. It doesn't happen. You are a trained uh, advocate, and you are paid a set, usually hourly rate, and then you go about advocating for your client. And you might look at the case overall and say, boy, you know, considering all the facts, I'd rather be on the other side, but you don't get to you make that choice. You advocate for the, uh, the side that you are paid to advocate for. That's how the adversarial system works in a court of law. So I have repped, I've said this before, murder defendants. I've repped drug defendants. I've uh, repped uh, domestic assault defendants. And I've repped the biggest companies that you can imagine basically in the United States. A lot of variety of clients. But you don't get to choose which argument you like. You go out and you defend one side. And you get paid, hopefully fairly well. But you're victim of the billable lawyer, by and large. Now, there are exceptions. You could be a plaintiff's lawyer, and you can take a share of the revenue that you produce in any eventual settlement. But the reason why I say I have the best job now is because I get to pick everybody that I represent. And what I mean by that is I get to look at all the facts, and then I get to make the argument that I think is most justified based on what the facts in a scenario are. And what's important about that is you can come in with the legal training to be able to argue multiple sides of a case, but then you get to pick the side and I get to make the case that I believe in on a daily basis. That's essentially what I get to do. I get to practice law, but without the trouble of having a client. (laughs) I get to just look at the facts and pick the facts that I think are the best side of any argument. And so really when you break down what goes on in political campaigns is each side tries to make the best argument, tries to tell the best story about why their side should win. And I talk about this a lot in the book because in addition to having a law degree, I also have an MFA in creative writing, Master of Fine Arts, law degree from Vanderbilt, MFA from Vanderbilt. And really when you get an MFA, you basically just study the craft of storytelling. And uh, it's, it's not a surprise, but the best trial lawyers are typically the best storytellers. So, what's going on here? What's actually going on with the charges that are going to be brought against Trump? I'll tell you. Democrats have looked at the entire game plan, and they have decided the best chance they have to win in 2024 is by running against Trump. Donald Trump. Now, a lot of Trump supporters, for whatever reason, particularly those that are active on social media, hate to hear this. It's not meant to be an indictment of Trump. The Democrats have decided that they want Trump to be the Republican nominee. And all of the charges that they're bringing in New York City, soon to be Atlanta, Washington, D.C., soon to be down in South Florida, they recognize what the impact of those charges has been. It strengthens Trump as a Republican nominee, 
But Democrats believe it simultaneously weakens him as a contender in the general election in 2024. Democrats, those of you out there who are fans like I am of Game of Thrones, are effectively trying to select their opponent. They want Trump. They believe that the women who rejected him in uh, the suburban women in the 2020 election aren't coming back. They believe that the voters who supported Biden will support Biden or another candidate in 2024. That's why all these charges are being brought. And I, I like kind of am stunned by it. But there's a story up at Mediaite where they say, Clay Travis invents wacko conspiracy that Democrats are prosecuting Trump to help him win the 2024 primary. Wacko conspiracy? One of the reasons why I've had success is because I'm pretty good at analyzing what each respective side is trying to do in, in any story. How is it a, quote, wacko conspiracy? Here's a way to think about it. Would Democrats be charging Trump if they thought it made him more likely to win in 2024? The answer is no. The number one goal of Democrats is to derail Donald Trump's electability. But remember what they did in 2022? I can't believe that this didn't get more attention. Democrats actually spent money on uh, candidates that they thought were the most connected to Donald Trump to elevate them in the Republican primary because they thought they would be more likely to beat those candidates in the 2022 election. And for the most part, they were right. They supported in toss-up districts uh, candidates who were further right-wing with the idea being that if they spent and they did, millions and millions of dollars to elevate those candidates, they had a better chance of winning the race. So you're telling me they would do it in 2022 and they wouldn't do it in 2024? The charges that are being brought about against Trump aren't designed to knock him out of the election. They're designed to strengthen him with the Republican primary. And as a result, they are designed to allow Trump to be the nominee because Democrats think they will beat him because the data that they look at says he's not going to be able to appeal to independents because they've tried to turn January 6th into the most dangerous day in American history. And that's why they're charging him with January 6th crimes. And this is clear as day to me, right? Democrats don't want to knock Trump out of the election. They want to ensure that he's the nominee because they think they can beat him. And now what this does is it brings home the lie that is being sold by Democrats, which is Trump is an existential threat to the American democracy. Because if you really thought that, you wouldn't have tried to elect Trump supporters in 2022 in the midterms, and you wouldn't be trying to put Trump in as the nominee in 2024. If Joe Biden could wave a magic wand in the event that he could actually run again in 2024, he wants to run against Trump. He wants to run against Trump. Now, Democrats, 
in 2016 thought there was no way that Hillary would lose to Trump, which is why they wanted Trump to be the nominee in 2016. And they were wrong. Trump beat Hillary. But Democrats picked Joe Biden specifically to run against Trump, and they think they'll beat Trump again in 24. And I don't really understand the argument to the contrary, even. Some Trump people are like, oh, you're a big DeSantis supporter, or you're a big Tim Scott supporter, or you're a big, you just want anybody but Trump. It's not true. I would be ecstatic if Donald Trump were president right now. I worked hard for Trump to be elected in 2020. If Trump is the nominee, I will work hard for Trump to be elected in 2024. Go listen to the radio program. I'm going to share a clip in a little bit. We had a caller in Rhode Island call in and say, well, if Trump's the nominee, I'm not going to go vote for him. And my argument is that's like taking your ball and going home. Any Republican that emerges from the Republican primary is going to be a far better choice than Joe Biden or whomever the Democrats put forward in the event, as I believe it's not Joe Biden himself. But that doesn't mean you should willfully blind yourself to what's going on. This isn't about trying to keep Trump from being able to run in 2024. There's no, nothing that's occurring that is going to take Trump off of the ballot. There's nothing that's occurring that is going to keep you from being able to go out and vote for Trump in January, on January 15th in Iowa, on whatever the date is going to be in New Hampshire, in South Carolina and in Nevada, which I believe are the first four states before we get to Super Tuesday. Again, this is off the top of my head, which I believe is March 5th. And then Florida is March 12th, along with several other states. By March 12th, I think we'll know who the nominee is going to be to take on Joe Biden. Democrats, if this were Game of Thrones, would pick Trump as the combatant that they want to fight against. That doesn't mean that they're going to win. Sometimes that can go awry, but it's important to understand what they are attempting to accomplish. And the fact that this is being called a wacko conspiracy theory is crazy to me because what occurs is actually very sane. Every time Trump is charged, there is a rally to Trump effect. Happened when the raid occurred in Mar-a-Lago. Happened when charges were brought in New York City. Happened when charges were brought in Miami. Will happen if charges are brought in D.C. And will happen if charges are brought in Georgia. Now, with each charge the rally is less substantial become because the precedent is being set. But are you telling me that Democrats haven't noticed that since they started charging Trump with crimes, his popularity in the Republican primary has surged? I asked a question, do charges against Trump, for everybody out there to vote, the poll's still up, do charges against Trump make you more or less likely to vote for him 71% of you said more. 29% of you said less. Well, that's basically what's happening in the Republican primary. More people are coming out to support Trump. And every time there are charges, more people come out and support Trump. So you're, if you're arguing that this is some sort of wacky conspiracy theory, what you're arguing is that Democrats aren't recognizing 
the direct result of the choices that they are making and how it's impacting the overall presidential race? If Democrats thought that Trump was more likely to beat Biden based on charges being brought against him in the general election, they wouldn't be bringing charges against him. I can't, am I the only person saying this? I know Buck agrees with me on the show, but has no one else managed to have this register in their brain? It's exactly what's going on. Democrats are trying to elevate Trump by charging him because they think that that makes it more likely that he's the nominee while simultaneously making it impossible that he can win the general election. That's what's going on here. And you can make whatever decision you want, but it's important to understand what Democrats are doing. Now, this has nothing to do with my argument that this is the most destructive legal precedent that I have ever seen. We had Julie Kelly on my show in my life. Julie said she thinks it's more than 50% likely that when they bring charges against Trump in Washington, D.C. related to January 6th, that Jack Smith is going to try to put him in prison as a part of the pretrial process. Because remember, it's unlikely, in my opinion, that we are going to get criminal uh, trials complete before the election occurs. So make no mistake of what's going on here. Democrats are directly trying to influence the 2024 presidential election by trying to put the chief political rival of the current president of the United States, Joe Biden, in prison for the rest of his life because he has the audacity to be in opposition to Joe Biden. That is a cross-the-Rubicon, banana republic, I-can't-believe-this-is-happening-in-modern-day-America moment. And for everybody out there, recognize that if you thought 2020 had a lot of stakes, think about what Trump elected in 2024 would potentially try to do to Biden and everyone that has been propping up Joe Biden, including Hunter, who I think has engaged in criminal behavior, multiple felonies, including Merrick Garland, who I think has engaged in criminal behavior, that's the Attorney General, including certainly Dr. Fauci, many different individuals associated with Joe Biden, not just the Biden crime family, have behaved, Christopher Wray, uh, director of the FBI, in ways that I believe are criminal in nature. And if Trump is elected president, do you think all those people are going to go quietly into the good night and just take their multi-million dollar out-of-government checks and not have to worry about being prosecuted? Of course not. Trump is going to be out for blood, which means we have created a scenario where both political parties in 2024 are going to be running in many ways to try to keep themselves out of prison. If Trump wins, he's going to pardon himself. If somebody other than Trump wins as a Republican, I think they will likely pardon Trump. If the Democrat wins, they will try to put Donald Trump in prison for the rest of his life. That's where we are. It's not a healthy place for any country to be, and it's not a place that I ever believed the United States of America would be in in my life. But this is the world that Democrats have created. They have built such 
a temple of trunk derangement syndrome that they have convinced themselves that he's Adolf Hitler and he is a unique existential threat to American democracy. But remember, the lie here is if you truly thought Trump was the threat, why are you engaging in activities that are going to make it more likely that Trump is the nominee going forward? That is what they are unable to get past. That is what they are unable to even contemplate, right? That is where we are headed. Um, And so this is why I think all of this is so significantly important. We are facing, as we prepare for 2024, nothing less than uh, an election for the true meaning of American life. Do we support a robust and uninhibited First Amendment? Do we support a fair and impartial application of justice no matter the race, religion, political opinion, or sexuality of a citizen? Do we believe that America is the greatest country in the history of the world? These are just some of the issues that I talk about in this book. If you believe that that is all true, you have to vote Republican. If you don't, then you absolutely must vote Democrat. My choice is made. I believe in the First Amendment and boobs. Uh, I believe in the, uh, that the United States is the greatest force for freedom in the history of the world and the greatest country in the history of the world. And I believe that justice truly must be blind and impartial and applied evenly no matter what your background is, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whether you are gay or straight, white, black, Asian, Hispanic. We all have to be held equal in front of the courts. That's why Lady Justice is blind when you see the scales of justice being weighed. Right now, the Democrats, uniquely in American history and certainly uniquely in my life and most of yours as well, have turned the Department of Justice into a, uh, into a method by which people who disagree with them can be hunted down and they can try to put you in prison for the rest of your life. This, to me, is the true battle for our times, and who wins is tremendously, tremendously important. And right after that, we'll continue the discussion, but first, a momentary break. Uh, all right, a couple of other things that are far less significant. We're going to be talking about all of this a lot on Clay and Buck. So if you haven't already, I would encourage you to go subscribe to Clay and Buck and make sure uh, that you are following and listening to our show every single day because we're going to do, I think, a better job than almost anybody in media laying out the stakes, discussing the complexities, and analyzing everything in what is truly an unprecedented political situation much less serious. The Women's World Cup starts in, what, two days? Um, And I have a thesis. We're going to see how this thesis plays itself out. I am going to pick right now every single game that is played on uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Okay? My thesis is this. I know nothing really about the Women's World Cup at all. I know the U.S. women's players decently. I know, it's not going to shock you, I don't think. I know hardly anything 
about the Women's World Cup players on other teams. In fact, I'm not even sure I can name any woman who doesn't play on the U.S. women's soccer team. Okay? So I am doing this completely blind. Here is my thesis. We will see how I do. I don't even know how these teams rank. I am going to predict who wins every Women's World Cup match based solely on whether I believe women have more or less freedoms in the countries. That is, my thesis here is that the Women's World Cup is not actually a measure of women's athleticism so much as it is a measure of which countries have freedom around the world. And remember, these are the countries that are already among the freest because a lot of other countries never qualified because my argument here is if women don't have basic human rights, they certainly aren't able to excel at soccer. Okay? So I am picking every game right now. We'll see how I do. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, based solely on which countries give women more human rights, okay? New Zealand versus Norway. This is a tough one because I think both of these countries are super left-wing and I would presume, although I don't know off the top of my head, that you can probably have an abortion in both New Zealand and Norway up to when a kid is two years old. By the way, that is a joke, all right? That is a joke. They only allow you to have abortions up to one year old in New Zealand and Norway. Again, a joke. They'll pull this uh, clip. But I am going to say that Norway wins. I'm going to say that Norway wins as uh, the country that provides more human rights to women. I think also, to be fair a little bit, it's a bigger country, I think, than New Zealand. So I'm picking Norway. Australia versus Ireland. I'm picking Australia as the winner. Nigeria versus Canada, not a challenge. Canada's going to win this Women's World Cup match. The Philippines versus Switzerland, again, not a challenge. Switzerland is going to win. Spain versus Costa Rica, Spain is going to win this one. All right, I've picked the first five winners here. I don't know what the odds are. I can't even name you a woman who's playing on either team. Five winners, Thursday and Friday, based only on which country does women, do women have more human rights. United States versus Vietnam. I mean, come on. The U.S. is going to win this one. Zambia versus Japan. Japan wins. England versus Haiti. England wins. Denmark versus China, Denmark wins, all right? That's every game, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, only rating who's going to win other than the United States women. I don't even know a single player, only based on which country has more human rights. Sweden versus South Africa, Sweden wins. Netherlands versus Portugal. I have no idea. I'm going to say the Netherlands has more freedom because I think prostitution is legal in the Netherlands. I'm not sure that it's legal in Portugal. Therefore, the Netherlands gets the win. And then France against Jamaica, I'm taking France. And you know what? I probably should go through uh, 
I probably should go through Monday. Well, let's stop there. All right? That is every match. Let's see what time these other games are being played. Yeah, I'll have time to pick the rest. All right? I have picked for you. You want to play a parlay. This is a human rights parlay. Norway, Australia, Canada, Switzerland, Spain, U.S., Japan, England, Denmark, Sweden, and the Netherlands, and France. Those are my winners. I know nothing about women's soccer at all. Just that the country with more human rights is going to have the better women's soccer team. Why do I bring this up? Because Megan Rapinoe and all the super left-wing U.S. women's soccer players would actually do an incredible global service if they would talk about American exceptionalism and endorse basic human rights for everybody in those countries by saying, hey, this is who's going to win, all right? All they have to do is, I think, just pick the country where women have the most rights, all right? I just picked all of those different, let's say that is a American exceptionalism parlay. You can join me and bet Norway, Australia, Canada, Switzerland. Should I look? Should I look now that I've made the pick? Maybe I should look now that I've made the picks. Let me see if I can get lines um, on these soccer matches. And I'm actually just curious whether uh, this comports with what I would expect. Uh, All right. I took uh, Norway over New Zealand. um, And let's see. Norway is the favorite. That was smart. I'm going to play all these. I'm going to do a parlay. Uh, Australia against Ireland. Australia is the big favorite. Nigeria against Canada. Canada, the big favorite. Philippines against Switzerland. Switzerland, big favorite. Spain against Costa Rica. Spain, monster favorite. United States against Vietnam. United States, monster favorite. Japan, monster favorite over Zambia. England, monster favorite over Haiti. Denmark, big favorite over China. Sweden, big favorite over South Africa. And the Netherlands, based on my astute analysis of knowing that prostitution was legal there, a big favorite over Portugal. And France, a monstrous favorite over Jamaica. So I, without knowing anything other than basic human rights, just picked the favorite in every Women's World Cup match without knowing a single player playing other than on the U.S. women's team. Shouldn't that be a big story? Don't you think that's an incredible story? You can pick almost every match winner in the Women's World Cup just by picking the side that has more basic human rights. It doesn't, by the way, apply in the Men's World Cup because the Men's World Cup features all sorts of talented players from all around the world because men, even in repressive countries, if they are star athletes, have a lot of success. See if that clip goes viral. I'm going to play this as soon as I finish with you the parlay, the basic human rights parlay freedom, and we'll see if my picks on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday hit. And tomorrow, I will share with you what that parlay plays, uh, pays off. All right, um, last uh, topic for today. Uh, the NFL 
has made the decision. I thought this was interesting. I was reading this morning, uh, and I, I think it's still the case. Saquon Barkley was offered a $10 million salary for the 2023 season as the franchise tag uh, for the New York Giants. The basic running back salaries have completely collapsed. Christian McCaffrey makes $16 million a year. Alvin Kamara, $15 million. Uh, Derrick Henry and Nick Chubb and Joe Mixon uh, each learn at least $12 million a year. Most of the running backs, however, in the NFL are not getting any kind of contracts anymore because the data reflects that your running back doesn't really matter that much. And in fact, this is pretty wild. Uh, Josh Jacobs and Tony Pollard also have failed to reach extensions. Uh, But Barkley is refusing to pay. I thought this was interesting. So the franchise tag this year for the running back, $10.09 million, basically $10 million. Franchise tag for quarterbacks, $32.4 million. Offensive linemen, $18.2 million. Tight ends, $11.35 million. (laughs) Wide receivers obviously make way more. The least valuable component of the offense now has become the running back. And so if you are a running back, it used to be, it's fascinating to see how the NFL has evolved. It used to be, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s or 90s, the running back mattered more, it felt like, than the quarterback and certainly at least was as famous oftentimes as the quarterback. Now, running backs being totally left behind, Christian McCaffrey, Nick Chubb, Derrick Henry, Joe Mixon, uh, and, and uh, a few others, Alvin Kamara, are the extreme exceptions such that Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, and Tony Pollard can't even reach agreements. And we're almost to the point where you draft a running back get him under the rookie deal for four or five years, and then you just move on and you never actually uh, pay a substantial dollar figure to the running back position. Does this ever change? This is an example of how analytics has changed substantially the game such that if you're talented now at the running back position, you almost would tell somebody to play another position. Hey, maybe consider playing corner you would make a lot more money. Maybe consider playing safety. If you're big enough, tight end. Certainly if you're fast enough, wide receiver. I just think all of this very, very interesting in terms of the evolution of the game. All right, a lot of range as always. Appreciate all of you. Go buy the book, American Playbook. I am Clay Travis. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP. This has been OutKick, the show.